Glory be to God. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 13 because this is the word of the living God and you are the people of God. If you are able, would you please stand? And we're gonna read the entire chapter. Deuteronomy 13, beginning in verse one, Moses writes as he is carried along by the spirit of God. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you, gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil. From your midst, verse six. If your brother, the son of your mother or your son or your daughter or the wife you embrace or your friend who is as your own soul entices you secretly saying, let us go and serve other gods which neither you nor your fathers have known some of the gods of the peoples who are around you whether near or far off from you from the one end of the earth to the other you shall not yield to him or listen to him nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death. And afterward, the hand of all the people, you shall stone him to death with stones because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And all Israel shall hear and fear and never again do any such wickedness as this among you. If you hear in one of your cities, which the Lord your God is giving you to dwell there, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their city, saying, let us go and serve other gods, which you have not known, then you shall inquire and Make search and ask diligently and behold, if it be true and certain that such an abomination has been done among you, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword, devoting it to destruction. All who are in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword, you shall gather all its spoil into the midst of its open square and burn the city and all its spoil with fire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. It shall be a heap forever. It shall not be built again. None of the devoted things shall stick to your hand. Now the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy and have compassion on you and multiply you as he swore to your fathers. If you obey the voice of the Lord, your God, keeping all his commandments that I am commanding you today and doing what is right in the sight of the Lord, your God. Church family, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand. How long? Forever. You may be seated. Tomorrow, My beloved bride and I celebrate our 18th wedding anniversary. Yeah, praise the Lord. Amen. And trust me when I say that I have received the better end of that deal. And you know this. (laughs) Amen, she says. Well, the relationship I was privileged, I was thinking about that this past week, the relationship I was privileged to enter into about 18 years ago is what you would call an exclusive relationship. That is, by its very nature, it is the kind of relationship that neither Tana nor I should share with anyone else. In other words, there are characteristics, facets, 
attributes, enjoyments, responsibilities, and so forth of this relationship that belong only within the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. I would suggest to you that for these 18 years to turn into 50, for of course a whole host of things have to happen for that to take place, and even for that first year to turn into 18 years, it was necessary and it will be necessary for Tana and I to guard against anything that may threaten the exclusivity of this relationship. Anything. Anything that may threaten the exclusivity of this relationship from within us. Because if we're honest, at times we are oftentimes our worst enemies. And anything that may threaten the exclusivity of this relationship from outside of us. Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 13, Israel has entered into an exclusive relationship with the Lord, their God. They are, as a result, to grant ultimate allegiance, love, and worship to God alone. Moreover, there will be certain dangers they will face, in particular dangers that they will face as they are entering into the land of Canaan. And these dangers will threaten the exclusivity of their relationship with the God who alone has redeemed them. In other words, there are certain facets of the relationship that Israel has with God or enjoys with God or owes, as it were, to God that they are not to grant to anyone or anything else. So throughout our text, God warns Israel of these potential dangers. Now remember, what we are doing as we walk through this book of the canon, this book of scripture, is we are not merely reading this text as a historical document detailing the ancient journey and conquest of the Hebrew people. We indeed are doing that, but this book is so much more than a historical document and a historical artifact. In these three dangers in Deuteronomy chapter 13, we also find instruction from the Spirit of God for us as a church in the 21st century right here in Powell, Tennessee. And so this side of the cross and this side of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we look back at the Old Testament text and we read and interpret and apply the Old Testament text as Christian scripture. Now, all along the way there, it's important to nuance how we are to interpret the Bible, how we are to apply the Bible. After all, we are not to take Old Testament instruction and simply transplant it into our contemporary context. And so maybe an easy example of this would be, a danger of this would be, a pitfall of doing this would be taking promises made to the nation of Israel and applying those promises to any contemporary nation today, including the nation of America. That's an interpretive failure. That's a hermeneutical failure. And so as we talk through these things, and you'll notice we're going to do that a bit this morning, we're doing it all throughout Deuteronomy. We're seeking to take these Old Testament instructions and we're seeing them filtered through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Christ's incarnation, life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And then we're seeing how those instructions now get contextualized in the contemporary church. So we're gonna do that even this morning through these potential dangers that threaten Israel's exclusive relationship with God and, as we're going to argue, that threaten potentially our exclusive relationship with God through Christ. So if you're taking notes, here's how we're gonna do this. It's really quite simple. In the order of the text, we are going to identify and unpack three dangers that threaten our exclusive relationship with the God who has redeemed us. Three dangers. We could call these perpetual dangers because they persist. Three perpetual dangers that threaten our exclusive relationship with God through Christ. Let's begin by reading the first few verses again together. Verses one through three. Look down at the text with me, if you would. If a prophet 
or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. And if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams for the Lord your God is testing you, notice, to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. The first danger that threatens our exclusive relationship with God is the danger of what I'm calling counterfeit teaching. The danger of counterfeit teaching. Now, the example God gives Israel in our text is of a religious leader, in this case, a prophet or a dreamer of dreams who offers a miraculous sign. Now, a prophet was someone who spoke the very words of God. We're not going to do a word study on prophets here, but it's important to understand that prophetic speech included what many have called foretelling, that is, predicting the future, and forthtelling, that is, announcing or publicizing or speaking forth the word of God. The prophet's message was to be nothing less and nothing more than God's very words. And so you oftentimes find, for example, throughout scripture, especially in the King Jameth, right? Thus saith the Lord. I can't help but use that. Sticks. Thus saith the Lord. Similarly, you've got in the text this dreamer of dreams. And this is probably a reference to someone who likewise shared the word of God, but did so through his or her dreams or and the interpretation of other dreams. And so, for example, you might think of Joseph in the book of Genesis who has dreams that, of course, end up coming to pass, but also has been granted this unique gift by the Spirit of God to interpret dreams others are having. And this is oftentimes seen as an avenue for God to speak to his people in ancient times. And so you have a prophet and you have a dreamer of dreams. You have these religious leaders. And in either case, these miraculous signs served to validate the message they were bringing to God's people. So in the scenario Moses presents, the prophet presents a sign and the sign comes to pass. This, by the way, is a miraculous sign. The language used here in the text, sign or wonder, is the same language used to describe what God accomplished for Israel in Egypt as he judged the people of Egypt and as he judged Pharaoh in his court. And so this is a supernatural, miraculous sign that actually is provided somehow. The text doesn't tell us how, although the text does tell us the Lord is sovereign over these instances and is using this instance and other instances to test his people. But this sign occurs with the prophet or this sign occurs with this dreamer of dreams. But notice that the way to determine whether the prophet or dreamer of dreams is the real thing was not by the mere presence of a miracle. In fact, the way to determine whether or not this person was sent from God and is actually speaking the words of God was by the harmony his or her message had with God's already existing revelation. That's not relevant today, is it? Surely there is no one today claiming to be performing signs and miracles, claiming to be sent from the Lord, perhaps even at times performing signs and miracles, and yet speaking words that are in direct contradiction to God's revealed word in Scripture. This is an ancient problem. And in this text, the prophet of the dreamer of dreams actually was inciting the worship of false gods. Come, let us go and worship other gods. And look here, I, I've got the miracle to prove it. So rather than Israel giving what belongs exclusively to the God who has rescued them, the one true and living God, these religious leaders were tempting Israel to turn away from that exclusive relationship and turn toward counterfeit gods through counterfeit miracles and a counterfeit message. 
And Moses says, as he's carried along by the Spirit of God, this prophet or this dreamer of dreams must be rejected. Moreover, Israel is to do what with this prophet or dreamer of dreams? Kill them. And we're going to get to that in just a few moments. Again, this is one of those examples where we don't just take an instruction in the Old Testament and transplant it into the church. You won't find us killing anyone here at First Baptist Powell. You'll be glad to know. But there are reasons for this, and we're going to get to some of that here in just a bit as we filter these things through the lens of the first coming of Jesus Christ. But here, the person who is peddling idolatry is to be killed. This is serious. Heresy is damning. It matters what we believe and teach about the God who is. It's an issue of eternal significance, and so God doesn't take it lightly nor should his people take it lightly. False teaching has plagued the church in in some way and in some of the similar ways as it plagued Israel. There are times when those who teach contrary to the truth of the gospel and the Christian faith appear to be trustworthy people for various reasons. And yet the words that are coming out of their mouths are contrary to Christianity or in direct contradiction to what God himself has spoken in his words sufficiently and revealed in the gospel. There may even be the case that such a false teacher is able to perform a miracle or a sign ostensibly authenticating the message he or she shares and the church must be able to rest and depend upon already existing revelation in scripture. And so the church has to be able to say, I don't care what you've done. I don't care the sign that you've seen. It contradicts what God has said. And because it contradicts what God has said, I I reject it. But by the way, this gets into so much. And I think our missionaries among us are better at this. They're more acutely aware of this reality. You understand that life is about more than you can see with your eyes. We are plagued by a naturalistic understanding and worldview. Ken and I were talking just the other day and we were, I forgot what we were talking about. We had a conversation about how more things are going on behind the scenes than we recognize. How there is a real spiritual enemy and a real cohort, as it were, that follows this spiritual enemy. There are real messengers of the Lord who, as it were, are waging war. There are so many things that our physical eyes cannot See, now don't misunderstand me. It's not as if Satan and God are having this kind of tug of war and thanks be to God, he barely bests him in the end, okay? That's not what we're suggesting. Satan himself even falls under the purview of God's sovereignty. But there are so many things that are happening that we cannot see. And so for the biblical authors and for early Christians, I would even add, as they're reading the text, they actually believed that it's possible for a miracle, as it were, to occur and it not be something that's authenticating the message of the gospel. It may be something that's being accomplished by the prince of darkness. Now, I know that's, that seems outlandish to us, post-enlightenment. After all, we've been enlightened by the scientific revolution, and if we can't see it and we can't test it empirically, it cannot be true, right? The world, the scriptures describe to us, certainly include, it includes, as it were, that world, what we can see. It includes the material world, the corporeal world, the tangible and palpable world. But it also includes so much more than that. And so the Apostle Paul says, we look not to the things that are seen because those are temporary. We look to the things that are unseen Those are eternal. And so also, for example, in Ephesians chapter six, he's exhorting the brothers and sisters in that first century church and perhaps even churches that their real spiritual enemy is not anything they can see. They wrestle not against flesh and blood, but they wrestle against principalities and powers, rulers of this dark age, so forth. Let me suggest to you that our worldview consistently needs correction. 
in the text of Scripture. So that's a bit of an aside. There's a lot happening here in the text, but it seems that the false prophet, false dreamer of dreams, in the text is able to produce a counterfeit miracle. And I don't suspect much has changed in this respect. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Paul the Apostle is able to say, if I preach to you another gospel, even if an angel from heaven preaches to you another gospel, other than the one which you have received, which we've already preached to you, let that person be damned. He goes on to say, as we've said before, now I say again. He said this a few times. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So what is the church to do in the face of counterfeit teaching? Trust finally not in signs, not in wonders, not in appearances, but in the all-sufficient word of God. We are to be Bible people. It's always been the case. And we are to cling to the faith, to use Jude's language, we are to cling to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And by the way, this is one of the reasons, I'm gonna put a plug here, one of the reasons why I love doing church history. Because if it is the faith once for all delivered to the saints, there ought to be continuity between what I'm preaching on Lord's Day morning and what Irenaeus of Leon is preaching in the second century. You see? This is also one of the reasons why Christians have considered it helpful to construct and even memorize creeds and confessions that serve to summarize the Christian faith. And so these creeds and confessions, don't misunderstand, they're not equal in authority to Scripture. They are simply summaries of what is found in Scripture. And so in this sense, historically, most Christians have understood that creeds and confessions are subservient to Scripture. They're only to be believed, as it were, and trusted insofar as they are in agreement with and summarize the text of Scripture, but the church has consistently found it helpful to construct these summaries of faith and then to test other teachings on the basis of their congruence with that summary of faith, which, by the way, is a way of testing its congruence with the text of Scripture, you see? Because if I believe the abstract of principles, which is our confession as a church, if I believe the abstract of principles is an accurate confession, it's a confession, as it were, that faithfully summarizes the teaching of Scripture, then it serves then as a helpful tool to evaluate other teachings and even to evaluate proclivities in my own heart as I'm interpreting Scripture. I'll never forget being told by one of my mentors to read the Bible with the help of creeds and confessions not because they're equal in authority, but because they are, if indeed they are Christian creed and confession, they are accurate summaries of what is found in the text of Scripture. Now, I do want to add one more caveat here before we move on to our second danger. Understand that we are not talking about those beliefs about which many Christians have historically disagreed. This is an important distinction to make here. For example, I'll give you an example of this. Your conclusion regarding the rapture of the church or the timing of the rapture of the church may be clear to you. <laughs> Glory to God. And you may be right, but it hasn't been all that clear throughout the history of the church to the great cloud of witnesses, you see. And so I think this demands a degree of humility. That the Spirit of God actually hasn't called me to correct the entire great Christian tradition. But the Spirit of God has gently and graciously called me into that great tradition. So that as I interpret Scripture, I may, of course, have conclusions. Look, I have personal conclusions on some of these secondary or tertiary issues, and I may come to these conclusions on the basis of how I'm reading the text of Scripture, but I notice that actually... The history of Christianity carries a great deal of diversity on this particular issue. And so what do I do? Well, I hold my conclusions a bit more loosely on those issues. Yeah. 
When it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity, I hope I would die for it. When it comes to my view of the rapture, well, you know, it may depend on the weather. It's an overstatement, I know. I hope you get the idea. And so here, in Deuteronomy 13, we are warning, God is warning, by means of his spirit in the text, about those teachings that lead others away from the true and living God. We're talking about overt heresy. We are referring to teaching that cannot properly be given the epithet Christian. It may call itself Christian, but it's a disguise. It's a counterfeit to the true gospel because it offers a counterfeit God, perhaps with counterfeit miracles. Secondly, in addition to the danger of counterfeit teaching, we find the danger of competing loves. We're going to have to move through these others a bit more quickly than that first one. We'll see how that goes. The danger of competing loves. Look with me at verse 6. If your brother, the son of your mother, that is, in other words, a full biological brother. So if your brother or your son or your daughter or the wife you embrace or your friend who is as your own soul entices you secretly saying, let us go and serve other gods which neither you nor your fathers have known. Notice verse eight now. You shall not yield to him or listen to him. And notice what Moses goes on to say. You Your eyes should not pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall what? Kill him. And this example, the one enticing others to idolatry is a family member or a close friend. I'll be honest with you, as I was interpreting this text even this past week, this is the most painful one for me. If you were in the context of Israel as they entered the land of Canaan, and you had a near family member or a close friend who was enticing. Now, this is overt. Again, remember this. This is overt heresy. And this person is serving as an instrument of leading the people of God away from this exclusive relationship with the Lord, all right? This is not someone who happens to make a mistake in their interpretation during devotional time. Now, this is someone who is seen as an agent of the enemy, and if you were in that context, as Israel is entering the land of Canaan, and you were the one made aware of this, perhaps you were the one who was receiving this message and this enticement and temptation, you were to be the first one to enforce capital punishment against your own family member or perhaps your dearest of friends. Here's the point. The point is, our love for God is to be an ultimate and overriding love. Nothing is to rival it. This is no game God is playing. God isn't saying to you, add me to the pantheon of your loves. Add me alongside of your wife or your husband alongside of your son or your daughter, alongside of your dearest friend. God is saying, your love for me needs to be properly and overriding a supreme and primary and eclipsing love. In a way, this danger surfaced back in verse three where Moses actually informs us that God uses false teachers to test to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So competing loves are consistently a concern in Deuteronomy chapter 13. Let's be honest, they're consistently a concern throughout the book of Deuteronomy. This is Deuteronomy 6, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. It's a preeminent love. Listen to the way Jesus communicated the same truth in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 39. Jesus says this, do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. How about that, right? We just came out of a season where we were talking about Christ bringing peace to the earth. 
I love these tensions, this dialectic you find in the text of scripture. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. He continues, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves, get this, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. In other words, whoever loves his own life more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And we need to tease this out just a bit. And our poor last danger will get just the leftover. I asked myself this week, what is my love for Christ like in comparison to my love for my wife? What is my love for Christ like in comparison to my love for my three children for whom I would, I would die? And, and to be honest with you, those questions have resulted in times of confession and repentance in my life this week. And I'm thankful, as we're going to talk about in just a moment, of the mercy and the infinite grace of a God who doesn't just call us to obey, but then provides that obedience in Christ. And then through the obedience of Christ, actually begins to transform us. I'm thankful that the day is coming when I'll be able to say, I do love God more than anything perfectly. That day hasn't arrived yet. But when Christ returns and we see him as he is, we will be like him. So all of that has played a role as I've wrestled with the Lord in this text even this week. And by the way, you need to know this about me. You know, Ezra 7, Ezra sets his heart to study the law of the Lord. Study the law of the Lord. To do it. And to teach its precepts in Israel. Be, continue to pray for those who teach you the word of God to study, then to do. Not to study, to teach. To study and out of that study to be transformed by the power of the word of God, wielded by the spirit of God, and then to teach out of that transformation. But I wrestled with this a great deal throughout the week. How does your love, how does my love for Christ compare to our love for our spouse or our children? How does our love compare? Let's even go to other items, right? All loves, our love for wealth. How does our love for Christ compare to our love for wealth? Or our love for Christ compared to our love for comfort? Or our love for Christ compared to our love for peace? Fulfillment, tranquility. By the way, benefits of knowing Christ, but not Christ himself. How does our love for Christ compare to our love for our job or our hobbies, whatever those hobbies may be? How does your love for Christ compare with your love for popularity and acceptance? Again, good things potentially, not Christ. And what is so terribly challenging about all of these loves as we compare them with a love for Christ, is that God calls us to these loves to one degree or another. You know this? Let's just take the example of a spouse. What does God tell us in relationship to our spouse? Love. He commands us to love our spouses. And so how do we untangle this challenge on the one hand of loving our spouses well and yet not loving them as we love the Lord Jesus Christ? I don't think that the problem occurs necessarily when we love things other than God. And I know that because God himself commands us to love things other than him. I think the problem surfaces when we approach these good things as the end, not as the means. This is tricky business, I know. When my relationship to my wife becomes the end, and I'll miss this, and Christ becomes the means to that end, I'm committing idolatry. 
when my love for my children is the primary goal, and let's say it this way, the product of raising my children. When having children who are good citizens and appear to honor the Lord and are good church members and so forth, if that's the primary goal and Christ then becomes the means for achieving that primary goal, then a lesser love has become the ultimate love and I'm committing idolatry. And so I've had conversations with people from time to time and this is when it gets real for me as a pastor as I'm interacting with others who maybe going through marital strife and conflict. And, and I, I'll never forget one phone call in particular. I got a phone call from someone, I think I've told you about this. And this particular person said to me, in tears, you know, I, I've got to fix my marriage. I said, what's going on? And, and, and this person said, well, you know, my, my spouse has left me and, and says that they're not going to return. And I said, well, what do you think you need to do? And this person says to me something like this, well, I think I need, I think I need to serve God. And I said, why? And his response was ambiguous. And I said, maybe not in these words, but I said, Jesus will not be a means to fixing your marriage. It may be, it may be that coming to Jesus Christ ends up resulting in a repaired marriage. And I would suggest to you that it will if you are both coming to Christ. But Christ is not a means to a greater end. I said, are you willing to serve Jesus Christ whether your marriage succeeds or fails? In fact, what if coming to Jesus determined the failure of your marriage? That's the kind of love Deuteronomy 13 is talking about. Augustine, Augustine calls this a properly ordered love in the city of God. In fact, if you're in community groups, you have a question tonight where Augustine gets quoted. I felt like that was quite an achievement for our community groups. Here's what Augustine says. Not in city of God by the way, this is in Confessions. For he loves you too little, praying to God, he loves you too little who loves along with you anything else that he does not love for your sake. Let me read that again. Augustine prays and even confesses. For he loves you, O God, too little who loves along with you anything else that he does not love for your sake. And Augustine actually also makes a distinction. He writes a lot about this. In a book called On Christian Doctrine, he makes a distinction between those things that should be enjoyed and those things that should be used. And that's the distinction he makes. There are perhaps other ways we could frame this, but this is how Augustine frames it. Those things that should be enjoyed and those things that should be used. Over here in the category of enjoyment, you know what he places? God alone. Augustine says only God is to be enjoyed. This is how he communicates it. Everything else is to be used as an instrument to that end, to the enjoyment and glory of God. That's properly ordered affections. You see, that's getting close, I think, to what God is saying in Deuteronomy chapter 13. Finally, let's get to our last danger with a few minutes remaining. Finally, in addition to the danger of counterfeit teaching, and competing loves, we find the danger of corporate sin. The danger of corporate sin. Notice verses 12 through 15 with me. If you hear in one of your cities, which the Lord your God is giving you to dwell there, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their city, saying, let us go and serve other gods, which we have not known, then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently, And behold, if it be true and certain that such an abomination has been done among you, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword. Now notice the escalation here. 
this final danger, devoting it to destruction. And all who are in it, including its cattle with the edge of the sword. So here, an entire city has been led astray into idolatry. A few worthless fellows go out and entice this entire city and the fact has been confirmed or the news has been confirmed that indeed this entire city now is worshiping false gods. They've abandoned the exclusive relationship that God has granted them by means of his redemption. And so after this careful investigation, the entire city is to be completely leveled. This reminds us actually, if you've been with us in Deuteronomy, It reminds us of Deuteronomy chapter seven where God is instructing Israel in their dealings with the Canaanites. They are to be completely destroyed. Committed to the fierce judgment of God. Uniquely committed to the fierce judgment of God. And so it was possible for an Israelite city to go through the same judgment as a Canaanite city. By the way, this again causes us to revisit the reality that the issue was never ethnicity. The issue was worship. Now, the humbling and frightening reality is is this. As sinners and as idolaters, each and every one of us deserves God's fierce judgment. However, God the Father has sent God the Son to absorb that judgment for us. You may say, well, period, I've never actually committed idolatry. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, I believe it's verse 5, that all sin is idolatry. Every act of sin is an act of idolatry. Every sin is a challenge to what belongs exclusively to God. So all of us are guilty of idolatry. All of us are guilty of the sin that results in the complete annihilation of the Israelite city in Deuteronomy chapter 13. Every one of us. But the good news is, as Paul the Apostle writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We could say it this way, Christ Jesus came into the world to save idolaters. And so this fierce judgment that belongs properly to us was placed on Christ on the cross. Until he said, of course, it is finished, gave up the ghost, gave up the spirit. And he paid for it. He took your punishment, God's fierce judgment for you, if indeed you'll trust in Jesus Christ, so that you could have God's blessing and enter into, as it were, this eternal and exclusive relationship with the living God. Now, friends, what this means is God's fierce wrath against all who are guilty of idolatry will be meted out in one of two ways. It will be meted out. God, God never says, you know what, I'm gonna overlook it. I'll just, I'll just ignore it. Never, that would be unjust. Either, either you will stand in the presence of God on that terrifying day in the presence of Christ and you will receive God's eternal and fierce wrath against your idolatry. Or you will trust in one who has absorbed it for you in Jesus Christ. And you will surrender to this one. And through this one, you will enter into this right and exclusive and proper relationship with the God who has created you and the God who has redeemed you. And you'll spend the rest of your life serving him. And that life will give way to the next life when Jesus Christ returns, he splits the clouds, you see him as he is, and you're finally and forever transformed into his likeness. So I plead with you this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ, if you've not trusted in Jesus Christ, if you've not surrendered to Jesus Christ, do that this morning. Repent of your sins, repent of your idolatry and turn to Christ. And if that's where you are, please stay after and have a conversation with us. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to come alongside of you and talk about what this means 
and you alongside of us as we walk in obedience by God's grace, as we walk in faithfulness to him, would you please, on your way out this morning, take a left and join us in a room located to the right out there called the Crossroads. You'll see a sign above it where Pastor Darren will be and he would love to talk with you and pray with you about what it means to honor this savior who bore God's wrath for you. Now even, even having come to know and love God through Christ, the danger of corporate sin remains. The final remedy has been granted in Christ and yet we exist during this season of tension. And as we've seen in the text, an entire city is polluted with idolatry and therefore falls under God's judgment. This is, this is one of the reasons, now we're gonna filter this, okay? As we read these instructions and we read them through the lens of the first coming of Jesus Christ, how are they applied in the contemporary church? This is one of the reasons why churches must be willing to lovingly confront members who persist in unrepentant sin. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I wish we could turn there. We can't. You can turn there later and check it out. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he quotes Deuteronomy 13, the passage we are walking through. And in 1 Corinthians 5, what's taken place is there is a member of the church who is living in unrepentant sexual immorality. And Paul quotes Deuteronomy 13. Not to say, take him out back and stone him. That's not how the church deals with and responds to unrepentant idolatry. Paul says, remove him from membership. Deliver him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is to say, remove him from the covenantal protection the spirit of God offers through membership in the local church. With the goal that he repents with the goal, notice in the text, now we're not there, go back and look at it, with the goal that even Satan himself will be used as an instrument in the hands of a gracious God calling that unrepentant brother or sister back to repentance. And so if we read texts like Deuteronomy 13, through the lens of the gospel, what we find out is that we do not wield the authority or the power of the physical sword the church has never properly and justifiably wielded the physical sword. It's not been granted to us. What has been granted to the church is the authority of the word of God and the means of grace known as church discipline. I would add to this, if I can be frank, the church that is unwilling to discipline and confront members who are living in, I don't miss this, unrepentant. That is, they're not repenting of it. They're refusing to repent of it. They're, they're embracing their sin and rejecting Christ. And apparent sin, right? We're not confronting one another, as it were, these hidden sins of the heart. These are sins that are apparent, that are overt. But the church that refuses to confront to hold accountable and to lovingly discipline its members who are living in unrepentant and apparent sin is the church that is unwilling to obey God's clear instruction. I'll never forget standing before the congregation I was privileged to pastor last. Grace Bible Church. And having this conversation because of a member who was persisting months and months and months. In fact, by this point, I think it had been over a year in overt, unrepentant sin. And I'll never forget standing there and saying to our church, church, we've got a decision to make. And, and really, it's simple. Are we going to obey God or not? And are we going to allow God to actually tell us what is loving? Or are we going to tell God what is loving? So this is how this, this gets contextualized in, in the local church, something that we would never want to do. We would love it if we never had to do it again, but that would be naive, probably this side of resurrection. 
And it would also be the failure to recognize that it's through processes like this, holding one another accountable, that God graciously grants repentance and restoration to the wayward son or the wayward daughter. Well, we've identified three dangers that threaten our exclusive relationship with God and entice us to idolatry. First of all, we face, like Israel, we face the danger of counterfeit teaching and we must be vigilant to know and submit to God's revelation in his word. Secondly, we face the danger of competing loves. By God's grace, we must continue to seek properly ordered loves, loving everything else for Christ's sake. And then finally, we face the danger of corporate sin In love, we've been called to hold one another accountable to living lives of repentance and faithfulness, seeing that the church of Jesus Christ is a church that is pure and holy by means of God's grace in the gospel. And the church throughout this age, the church until Jesus Christ returns, will be afflicted and threatened from temptations to idolatry, but our final victory is indeed in Christ Jesus. And and this is why This is why we're able to sing words like this written by Samuel John Stone. The church shall never perish. Her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those that hate her and strive to see her fail against both foe and traitor, she ever shall prevail. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks this morning that you are faithful. We thank you that you don't mince words. We're thankful that this morning we have been confronted by your spirit in the text of scripture. And we pray that you would grant us repentance. And the fruit of repentance a repentance that is consistent with the gospel we've been granted in Christ Jesus. Would you continue to transform us, guard us against counterfeit teaching and counterfeit theology? Teach us even within our own hearts how we have gone astray from you. Guard us, O God, against competing loves. Order our loves according to your mercy in Christ Jesus. Teach us, O God, to love everything for your sake. And because we love you more than anything else, then we are ready properly to love those other items you call us to love. And would you guard us as a church against the danger of corporate sin? Help us, Father, to hold one another accountable. To do so in gentleness, with patience, out of faith trusting that you know what is best, that you are love. Because after all, and this is love, not that we have loved you, but you loved us and sent your son to be the propitiation for our sins. We pray these things in trust, in Christ, in all God's people said.